Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more. Not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded and a time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe. Those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor, and here in this studio with me today is the lovely Ravinder, always willing to be uncertain for an hour. So, Rav, say hello to everyone. Share your special insight of the day, and please tell our audience how they can learn more about our show. Well, hello, everyone. It's great to be back with you. You know, it's easy for me to be willing to be uncertain for an hour, because I think I'm uncertain most of the time anyway. So, uh, actually, I think that's a pretty good way to live. Just There's always that possibility that there's something else I can learn, um, that I don't have to have all the answers. Um, yeah, I'm just open to experiences. So, yeah, I'm just frequently uncertain. There. But um, if you want to learn more about the show, we do, of course, have our website. That is ProvocativeEnlightenment.com, where we have all the archives and everything there. But also we have a Facebook page. Simply search for Provocative Enlightenment Radio. Um, any important links that get shared during the show, if the guest talks about anything um, or has anything to offer, then we will get the links posted up um, on the Facebook page. So do pop in there and say hello. And yeah, we've got a great show coming up today. I'm excited. Oh, good. In this week's spotlight, our subject is perception. If you look at Goodreads for quotes from authors, the first one you find under my name says this. The absolutely awesome, incredible power of belief is the genie in your life. Indeed, in my book, I believe when what you believe matters, the takeaway after examining all of the science can be stated this way. Everything you believe matters. Belief shapes expectation, which forms perception. So what? I mean, what does that mean? Well, consider this. A new recent uh, study announced, and I quote, negative spiritual beliefs are associated with more pain and worse physical mental health. The researchers found that folks who felt it was their karma suffered much more than those with no such belief. In other words, if your belief system includes the idea that disease and sickness are trials or punishment, then the suffering will be much more intense. Now, that makes perfect sense when you think about it, because expectation becomes perception. Let me flesh that out some. Many believe the reason the Incans were taken over so easily by the conquistadors was due to a prophecy regarding the arrival of the gods. The late scientist Candace Pert argued that when the Incans first saw the arriving Spanish ships, they believed the prophecy was coming true, as they had never seen ships like this before. They had no frame of reference, and as such, when the men with what appeared to be golden hats started to come ashore, what they saw were gods walking on water. 
because of the belief there was no resistance until it was too late. Expectation, that of the imminent arrival of gods based on prophecy, led to this fatal perception. Over and over, research informs us that what you truly believe is what you manifest. Now understand, what you manifest is based on your perception. So there is a circularity here. Recent studies have shown that there is a difference in brains between the optimistic and others. In a headline appearing in Medical Daily, we we were instructed that optimist or pessimist brain scans show positive and negative people really do think differently. The study revealed not only a different hardwiring, but the necessity of a different approach when helping your pessimistic friends. You can't just tell them to be positive, for that strategy won't work. Instead, the approach should be one of evaluating the problem in a reasonable manner. Just as we are hardwired in ways that direct our optimism, we are hardwired to believe. The brain is a believing machine, and I've blogged on this many times. The fact is, our very nature requires that we believe. We must rely on our understanding of the world or we'll go crazy, literally. Imagine how you would behave if you disbelieved gravity and were ever prepared for its sudden suspension. So, believe we do. France Anton Mesmer taught the world a great lesson. Using magnets, he was able to manipulate our so-called animal magnetic properties. He could magnetize a tree and lead a patient to the tree, and the patient would instantly be cured. The number of cures Mesmer is reported as achieving are nothing short of miraculous. But it turned out that Mesmer's magnets were not curing anything. It was the power of the authority and the subject's own suggestibility that brought about the cure. Belief in the cure was the cure. Expectation preceding perception once again, or as William James, the great American philosopher, put it, belief creates the actual fact. In the delightful book, Kidding Ourselves by Joseph Hallinan, this sort of cure is called the medicine of imagination. Placebo research has demonstrated that given the right authority, some placebos are as effective or more so than the real treatment. Indeed, according to Helen and many of today's so-called wonder treatments are themselves nothing more than Mesmer's magnets. Helen Ann is specific about some, including tapping and acupuncture. To support his case, he reviews a famous study where subjects were told they were being treated by acupuncture when, in fact, they were only touched by toothpicks. The group receiving the toothpick treatment received every bit the same relief as the group receiving acupuncture. In my book, Gotcha, some startling numbers are revealed by way of the number of physicians that routinely prescribe placebos for their patients. This is a worldwide phenomenon. And in the United Kingdom, where it is more prevalent, 97% of the doctors surveyed reported prescribing placebos. Now, why would they do that? Simply because it works. Bottom line, belief precedes expectation, which leads to perception, and perception is all we have. 
those are my thoughts. What are yours? How about you, Ravinder? What do you think? You know, I think that was a fascinating front end piece. Um, you know, I'm familiar with most of it, but there are times when you just bring everything together in ways that, yeah, they inspire me too. And, you know, the power of the mind is absolutely uh, phenomenal. And so respecting your own mind to me is a huge part of what we should all be doing. We should be aware of, you know, how, how our minds can be influenced. We should be aware of how powerful they are. I think one of the best ways to do that is just to look at your Facebook page because you come up with all of these fascinating scientific studies and stuff. Um, it's just a quick way to remind myself to pay attention and how much more there is to learn. Well, thank you. That's kind of nice of you. What am I going to owe you for that afterwards? Big time. Big time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Our last show featured Mark Anthony, and Mark applied his mediumship skills with a number of callers. Richard wrote, following his on-air reading, that was wild, such a short period of time, but he hit a home run. So glad I was able to get through on the phone lines this time. Michelle wrote, thank you, Elder, for taking my call. I cannot believe how specific Mark was. I am so grateful. Moving on, AJ wrote, to change your subconscious mind and the way it talks to you, check out Eldon Taylor and his InterTalk programs. I have experienced phenomenal success with his InterTalk programs and recommend them to everyone. Thank you, AJ. Steve wrote, your letters are inspirational. I read your book, Choices and Illusions, like ten times. He read it more than you did, Ravinder. He continues, I am reading your book, I Believe, and I am listening to the CD that came with it. I think something is happening. I am walking around with a smile on my face all the time, and I am trying the beaming light thing also, and people are treating me different. I have never had so many people saying hi and smile at me. The first time I went to the store, I thought people are just having a good day, but the next couple of days it was still happening. I am seeing a difference in our customer's attitude as well. I thought to myself, wow, this is real. Well, thank you too, Steve. And yes, it is real. It's amazing the difference. Just a little adjustment in the way we conduct ourselves can reveal an entirely different world to us. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but please keep your comments coming. We do sincerely appreciate your feedback. You can opine by sending me an email at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at EldonTaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. Now to today's show, Ways to Go Beyond and Why They Work, Seven Spiritual Practices for a Scientific Age, and The God, The Science Delusion with Rupert Sheldrake. Now, Professor Sheldrake has been with us before, but for those of you who may have missed that show, let me tell you a little about him. Rupert Sheldrake, Ph.D., is a biologist and author of nine books, including The Science Delusion and Ways to Go Beyond and Why They Work, sequel to Science and Spiritual Practices. He was a Frank No Fellow at Harvard, a Fellow of Clare College, Cambridge, and a Research Fellow of the Royal Society. From 1974 to 85, he was principal plant physiologist and consultant physiology, physiologist at the International Agricultural Institute 
in Hyderabad, India. He is currently a fellow of the Institute of Noetic Sciences in California and of Schumacher College in Devon, England. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome back to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Rupert Sheldrake. Good to be with you, Eldon. You know, we like to learn three things on this show from our guests. Uh, what is the message? Who is the messenger? And how, of course, do we use the information? To that end, to begin, please share with us what you're passionate about today and why. I'm passionate about the way that scientific studies of spiritual practices have shown in broad terms, on average, they make people happier, healthier, and live longer. And that will come as no surprise to many of your listeners, or indeed to you, since much of your message seems to be similar. Um, what's happened, though, is that the, there's been a kind of convergence through these studies of spiritual practices of science and spirituality. And I'm a scientist, and I'm a spiritual seeker as well. And so this recent book of mine, Ways to Go Beyond and Why They Work, brings together two sides of my own life and our whole culture really is split at the moment between the scientific and the spiritual but they come together when science actually looks at spiritual practices because what it shows is that um, they do actually work and the science can illuminate what's happening in the spiritual practices and in this new book I discuss seven different ones um, which you know have measurable effects that's good, and I want to get into the new book, too, but you heard today's spotlight, Professor. What have I got wrong? You mean about placebo effects and so on? I mean about perception, you know, our belief yes, predisposing perception. our perception, our perception, therefore, creating our reality, and, you know, that's what I'm well, talking about. I think it's, it obviously is, no, I agree with much of what you said, I the only qualification I'd add is that there does seem to be a, a limit to this. You know, I do scientific experiments as a scientific researcher, and quite often I want an experiment to work, and sometimes it doesn't work. So um, if, if beliefs or, or hopes always condition perceptions, all one's scientific experiments would work, and they don't. So there is some kind of reality check um, based uh, that comes into play here. But I think in general terms, our beliefs condition our perceptions. They, our expectations affect the way we see the world. And we see things we expect on the whole. We miss things we don't expect. Um, and so, yes, I think that's very true. And also, it's very true that uh, placebo effects really work. And those depend on people's expectations and on their hope. And sometimes people say, well, you know, it's no use giving this drug. Here in Britain, we have something called the, um, the National Institute of Clinical Excellence, and they do what they call evidence-based medicine. And they sometimes find that alternative, not alternative, even regular drugs um, or regular treatments are no better than a placebo. And the conclusion is, well, it's not worth giving it then. Well, that seems to me a completely false uh, position because the placebos do actually work. And if you say, well, we won't give you anything because this treatment's no better than a placebo, the person's going to be worse off than if they had the treatment that was no better than a placebo. 
Amen. Amen. All right. Let's begin setting a stage, if you will, for your spiritually oriented work. As you mentioned, you are a scientist and you've made many contributions to science, including the introduction of the theory of morphic fields and morphic resonance. And I, for one, despite some of the criticisms are going, I I believe that that's going to stick. You know, the more work that's done in that area, the more evidence there is to support it. So you've written more than 85 science articles as well as 13 books. Speaking then as a scientist, What's wrong with the materialistic reductionism of most scientists today? Well, I think what's wrong with this is that the materialist worldview has taken over science since the late 19th century. It's not really science. It's a philosophy of nature. And in my book, The Science Delusion, which in the U.S. is called Science Set Free, um, I show that these the standard science belief system is based on 10 assumptions which most scientists take for granted um, which are not proven by science at all they're simply assumptions for example the assumption that the mind is nothing but the brain everything you think and do and believe and experience is only inside the head Um, also the belief that only mechanistic medicine really works the belief that the entire universe is made up of matter and physical reality and only physical reality. There's nothing but physical reality and it's unconscious. So the entire universe, everything, all reality is unconscious. Um, It has no purpose, no meaning. Um, And then, of course, they get into the problem that we're conscious. We ought not to be according to this worldview. So a lot of philosophers in the materialist school Um, try to deny that we're actually conscious and some say consciousness is nothing but an illusion but of course that doesn't explain it because illusion is itself a mode of consciousness Um, so I think this materialist belief system um, which dominates the sciences and the way they're taught is just that it's a belief system and it actually constricts scientific inquiry it actually uh, cramps what scientists can think it puts them into a kind of straitjacket and that's why in america my book's called science set free because i think when we move beyond these dogmas uh, science could be liberated and we could have much more interesting scientific research uh, which would open up new questions which at present are blocked during the introduction, I almost slept when referring to the science delusion, the title of your book in the UK, as you clearly point out. Um, you and I have talked about this before the last time you were on the show. Um, I almost referred to it as a God delusion, of course. Uh, and that because that title has been around and I, like you, I'm sure, have met many people who are on and on and on about the dogmatism that... I feel is eschewed in that book. Why do you think materialists are so dogmatic? Well, most materialists are militant atheists. And that means they're people, usually people who've been brought up in a spiritual or religious family, or if not them, their parents or their grandparents, who, you know, go back two or three generations, virtually everybody was religious. Um, that in their family history, they personally, or their parents or their grandparents, 
have rejected the ancestral religion, sometimes with good reasons. It's too dogmatic, it's narrow, it's cramping, etc. Um, and they've gone over to materialism, saying, you know, science is the way of the future. Because I believe in science, I'm a modern, liberated person. I've seen through all these delusions and superstitions. It gives people the feeling they're superior to everybody else. Um, and most militant atheists have converted to that worldview, and science is the basis of their worldview. They have to believe in it. It's, it's their religion, really, and scientism, where people have turned science into a kind of religion, uh, means that these uh, belief systems become something that are very important to their own identity. It makes them feel superior to religious or spiritual people. Um, and most of the people who believe this actually don't know very much about science at all. Ironically, um, they read people like Richard Dawkins and so on, and they accept it all on authority. Uh, they, so they're actually accepting dogmas. Uh, 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 they have an unquestioning faith in a belief system that they, they accept on authority. That's exactly what they accuse religious people of. And yet, in my experience, believers in scientism are actually more dogmatic than uh, almost all religious people. And what's more... Um, there's less choice involved. There's only one kind of science all around the world. So if you don't like regular science, then you know you, there isn't another kind. Whereas if you don't like Pentecostalists, you can become a Presbyterian. If you don't like them, you can become a Catholic. If you don't like them, you can become a Buddhist, or you can become a, a spiritual but not religious person. There's an enormous range of choice in the religious and spiritual area. In the scientific area, it's much more monolithic, much more totalitarian as a belief system. So people who find it challenged often get angry. I find that the opponents I have to deal with um, are not really open to science and reason at all. Um, they, they, they're dogmatic defenders of a dogmatic worldview, which is a great shame because science is supposed to be about open-minded inquiry. And yet right. people with that belief system are not interested in open-minded inquiry at all. So once again, we have a situation where belief is predisposing the outcome. Absolutely. I mean, in, in fact, some of the best examples would be from the so-called skeptics, the kind of people who uh, violently denounce the existence of telepathy or psychic phenomena in general. Um, they just say they're impossible, there is no evidence, and uh, even if they have experiences themselves, for example, telepathic experiences in connection with phone calls, then they'll just say, oh, well, it's not telepathy, it's just a chance coincidence, and dismiss even their own experience. And, of course, a single experience could be a chance coincidence, but the pattern of these experiences is such that something really seems to be going on. So I think that we're dealing, they're, they're in fact a very good example for what you were saying earlier about the power of belief and the way it shapes their perceptions of the world. All right. Many of the foundations of various spiritual beliefs are based on the idea that consciousness is non-local. I mean, moreover, it's often thought of as uh, the material manifestation, if you will, of a non-physical nature inherent to life. You know, suggests a non-corporal nature or even spiritual entity uh, within life. Now, science generally tends to view consciousness, as you pointed out, as a property that evolved and arises naturally, 
known generally as emergent properties. My question, sir, what's wrong with the emergent property theory held by many scientists when it comes to mind and consciousness? Well, first of all, um, there's no way that totally unconscious matter, which is what they believe in, could somehow generate consciousness by means of a magic word, emergence. That, and that's one reason that a lot of materialist philosophers themselves uh, are now going over to panpsychism as a philosophy of nature, namely the belief there's some low degree of consciousness even in electrons and atoms to get round the problem of something totally different emerging from something uh, of a completely different kind. That's the first problem. The second is that they think that it emerges from the activity of the brain, um, that it's all inside the head. Um, but they have no evidence that everything you see as you look around you now, everything I see as I look around me now, I'm seeing things outside me in a room, pictures on the wall, plants in pots, and so on. Um, all of that, three-dimensional in full color, is supposed to be inside your head, according to the conventional view. It's meant to emerge from your brain activities inside your head. Uh, somehow, these three-dimensional virtual reality displays are supposed to be secreted by the brain inside the skull. Yet, I'm experiencing these images as being outside me. Um, when I look at a plant in a pot in front of me, um, that plant isn't inside my brain. It's, it, I'm seeing it where it actually is. I think even in ordinary visual perception, our images are where they seem to be. Our minds are more extended than our brains. They're stretched out into the space around us. I think we project out the visual images we're seeing there in our minds, but they're not in our brains. And because our minds reach out to touch what we're looking at, uh, that, I think, is the basis for the phenomenon of the feeling of being stared at. You can often tell when another person is looking at you from behind. So I think that emergent view can't cope with the fact that our minds are much more extensive than our brains. Our intentions reach out as well. If I decide to phone uh, one of my sons, for example, uh, who's hundreds of miles away, um, my intention to telephone him goes before making the actual call. He may pick up that intention, which reaches out beyond my brain, start thinking about me, and when I ring, he may say, that's funny, Dad, I was just thinking about you. Uh, now, most people, over 85% of the population, have had that experience with phone calls, and I think they're actually picking up intentions at a distance. So I think our minds are extended beyond our brains through attention and intention, uh, just in ordinary, everyday life. And that's not even beginning to discuss the spiritual aspect of, uh, of consciousness. This is just to do with sort of ordinary connection with the world around us and with other people. Um, I think the reason for thinking that there are forms of consciousness beyond the human level is principally because people directly experience them in mystical experiences or altered states of consciousness Many people, some surveys show that most people have actually had the experience of feeling they're in contact with a greater mind or presence or consciousness than their own. And if the materialists say, well, that's not relevant because it's subjective experience, um, then I, again, I think that's a false argument because if you want to investigate consciousness, 
then you have to investigate consciousness through consciousness. If you want to experience physical phenomena, you you measure them through physical methods. To explore consciousness, consciousness is the best and, in fact, the only tool we have. You can find correlations in the brain, but if you want to know what consciousness is doing and, and what it feels like and what consciousness experiences are, you have to rely on conscious experiences. Very well said. We, we've got a break to take. When we get back, uh, I want to dig into ways to go beyond and some of the, uh, the different ways that you uh, have devised for measurement to demonstrate that these uh, practices, uh, spiritual practices, uh, indeed uh, culminate in very real measurable Outcomes, the science, if you will, of spirituality. We're speaking with Professor Rupert Sheldrake about his work and books, The Science Delusion, also known again, Professor, here in the United States as? As Science Set Free. Science Set Free. It's a great read. I I suggest everybody read that book. And uh, Ways to Go Beyond and Why They Work, also an excellent read. You can learn more about our guest and his books by visiting Sheldrake, S-H-E-L-D-R-A-K-E, Sheldrake.org. Okay, do please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra-prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your InnerTalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to innertalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Professor Rupert Sheldrake about his work and books, The Science Delusion and Ways to Go Beyond and Why They Work. You can learn more about our guest and his books by visiting sheldrake.org. Okay, every week we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some real meaning to them, some true significance. Music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, a hobby of mine. Uh, so, Professor, you chose Birth a Basket by your son, Cosmo Sheldrake. So, okay, besides it being by your son, is there any other reason this music is important to you? And if so, please tell us about that. Well, Cosmo has a wonderful musical gift, which he's had, you know, from a very early age. And... Uh, 
I mean, it's partly because his mother teaches singing and chanting, Joel Pass. I'm a pianist. Uh, I come from a musical family. My wife does, too. His Jill. And um, he's just had... He has this amazing inventiveness of music. And one of the good things about Cosmo's music for me is that it's cheerful. It leaves me feeling more cheerful, more uplifted after I've listened to it. Some music's depressing, some of it's violent, some of it's telling horrible stories. Cosmos isn't. It's um, it's happy music, and um, it's also beautiful music. So uh, those are the main reasons I like it. It's also unusual, inventive, and creative. So obviously I'm a fan, you know, and obviously I'm biased, but... Um, Cosmo is a, I, I just love his music so anyway that's why I chose one when you asked me um, it wasn't just family loyalty it was that those are the songs I really like listening to okay listen while you're talking about Cosmo's music this one was Bertha Basket tell our audience where can they you know get Cosmo's music well, he's got an album called The Much, Much, Ha, Ha, and I. And the best way is to go to his website, Cosmo Sheldrake, C-O-S-M-O-S-H-E-L-D-R-A-K-E dot com. And there you can listen to various tunes there, and you can buy his album. His latest album, which has just come out, is on Birdsong. It's called Wake Up Calls. And uh, it's all based on the songs of endangered uh, bird species, which again is very—it's a very ecological music, and and again beautiful. And some of the wake-up calls are actual wake-up calls that you can put on your smartphone and use them as an alarm in the morning. Uh, in fact, one of the ones on the album he made for me as a birthday present uh, a couple of years ago, and uh, my wife has it on her smartphone. I don't have a smartphone myself, but she uses it as as an alarm clock and you hear the dawn chorus and then these lovely music coming through the dawn chorus. And it's a much nicer way than with a jarring alarm clock. Uh, the only trouble is I've got so conditioned by this dawn chorus to wake up that when the real dawn chorus happens, I wake up. Um, <laughs> so uh, it's it's been slightly counterproductive as far as I'm concerned, at least in the spring when we have beautiful dawn choruses here in Britain. Anyway, his new album, Wake Up Calls, is, tr- is tremendous, and that's only been out for about a week. Okay, and again, that's Cosmo Sheldrake. CosmoSheldrake.com, yes. All right, when you see him telling me he owes both of us. All right, science has its paradigms, and as Kuhn pointed out so eloquently, changing paradigms is not an easy matter. Please unpack the problem with science today as you see, before we could ever have a paradigm shift, what has to happen? Well, I think what has to happen is that people have to realize the present paradigms are, first of all, their beliefs. They, most people don't know their beliefs. They think they're facts. And they, they have, in the modern world, all the prestige that goes with modern technology, smartphones, the Internet, jet planes, and so forth, um, keyhole surgery. Uh, all of these are triumphs of science and technology. And most people think it must be true what scientists say, because all these things work. Well, they do work, and they're very impressive. Um, but what people don't realize is that they're based on assumptions or beliefs. And the reason in my book, Science Set Free, 
called the Science Delusion in the UK, I actually um, outline these 10 basic beliefs and show what's wrong with them, how science has grown beyond them. Is to, the first step is to recognize their beliefs. They're not facts. They're not unquestionable facts. And secondly, um, I think then one of the most telling beliefs is, is this idea of the mind's nothing but the brain. Consciousness is nothing but the physical activity of the brain. We have no free will. That's the materialist belief. It's just a kind of glow around the nerve endings. Consciousness doesn't actually do anything. This is so implausible that um, and almost everyone assumes we have free will, even materialists, when they try to persuade you of their point of view, they assume you're free to choose to adopt it. And they'd like to believe they've adopted it through science and reason, not because their brain makes them say it. Um, so I think that's the first step, to realize something wrong. The second step, I think, is it, for many actual scientists, this comes through personal experience. Um, we all have experiences that show we're not just machines with um, computer-like brains uh, that have no emotions. I mean, it's so obviously false uh, that when you realize that, you realize you need to go beyond that. Scientists who are religious or who've had spiritual experiences or some through psychedelics as well, many young scientists have them through psychedelics, um, often get the sense that there must be more to life than this. And many scientists undergo a kind of personal conversion. Um, the great majority of scientists pretend at work that they believe in the materialist worldview, but recent surveys in Europe have shown that only about 25% of scientists are fully committed to a materialist worldview. Uh, you know, they pretend they believe it at work because you won't get jobs and you won't get career prom promotions and and so on, uh, if, if you um, step out of line. It's a bit like communism in the Soviet Union. You, people pretended to believe in it in public, even though they had many doubts uh, or disbeliefs in private, but they didn't like to say so because uh, it damaged their career. And, um, but how many were true communists when the Soviet empire fell? There were some, but not many. And it's, I think it's like that within science today. And actually, if you look at scientists uh, take the whole world into account, the great majority of scientists now are not white uh, Americans or Europeans. They're Indians, they're Chinese, they're Indonesians, they're Brazilians. And most of them have no real reason to believe in the materialist worldview. They're not sort of Western-type atheists. When I worked as a scientist in India, most of my Indian scientific colleagues in fact, I'd say practically all of them pretended to be sort of materialists at work. But as soon as they got home in the evening, they became fairly conventional Hindus, Muslims, Sikhs, or, or whatever, or Christians. Um, they just led a kind of double life. Um, so I think one of the, one of the things that will... Uh, changing what scientists think has already happened on a large scale. Uh, lots of scientists are sympathetic to the work I do, for example, but they always tell me they can't say so to their colleagues. It's a bit like gays in the 1950s. You know, they're, they're in the closet. Um, so actually, one of the things that will change it is when the funding becomes available for other kinds of research. Because right now, if all the funding goes to mechanistic materialist research, they'll have to go on pretending uh, if they want to get their grants. I think that what would make a huge difference is if philanthropists or 
foundations start funding on a larger scale alternative scientific research. And if people find they can actually get paid for doing things that aren't within the present paradigm, there'll be plenty of scientists willing to do this. Um, so it's partly a political and economic question. How do you change the funding system? Um, and, you know, there's now more billionaires than ever before, and you only need a few eccentric billionaires to decide to put their money in a different way from the way it's usually put to, to make quite a big change. So a few individuals could actually change the situation quite dramatically. You uh, you brought many or some of these points together with, you know, many, many more. To, uh, in a very coherent, I thought, presentation, uh, TEDx talk on the science delusion or, you know, science set free as our U.S. listeners would would find the book. And that TED Talk was banned. Fortunately, I got to see it before it was banned. Tell us, why was your TED Talk banned? Well, they tried to ban it, but you can't really ban anything nowadays. So people fortunately copied it and put uh, clones of the talk all over the Internet. And before it was, uh, they tried to ban it, it had 35,000 views. It's now had well over 6 million. So um, actually... um, trying to ban it was a benefit from the point of view of getting the message out there. The reason that the people in TED tried to ban it is because um, in that talk I challenged the dogmas of materialist science. And this really upset uh, some militant atheists in the United States, uh, particularly two who are militant atheist uh, bloggers. Um, One's Jerry Coyne, Uh, The other is called P.Z. Myers. Mm -hmm. And they were totally uh, outraged by what I said. Um, When I said science was dogmatic, they were so outraged. They said science is so undogmatic that this talk should be banned. And, uh, of course, proving my very point. Um, And instead of trying to argue against what I said, they uh, wrote blogs telling the TED administration that they discredited their organization by giving me this platform, and they could only restore credibility by banning the talk. And the people in charge of the TED organization panicked and foolishly banned the talk. Um, This is actually the technique that so-called skeptics uh, and militant materialists use. They don't usually try and argue with me or other people who go against their views. They try to deprive people of a platform um, or attack people who support them. And um, so anyway, that's what happened. And uh, the result is that I think it was a great embarrassment for the TED organization. Um, But the result is the talk's been seen by a great many more people than would otherwise have seen it. And in fact, any listener who wants to see it can simply put in Rupert Sheldrake, TEDx, and um, a version of this talk will come up uh, on a Google search. Um, So anyone who wants to see it can see it for themselves. And um, in it, I do try to summarize the points in that book. And I suggest everybody do exactly that. Go out there and find it. I didn't know that you could find it now. I heard it was banned. I didn't look again. I just... It was crazy that they were banning it. I did do some background on it, but I didn't know it was still out there. I should have thought it would be. How do you kill something on the Internet once it's there? Exactly. Uh, 
Okay, in your new book, Ways to Go Beyond, you suggest that we must go beyond in order to find, quote, life's meaning. What do you mean by going beyond or and, and or, I should say, life's meaning? Well, I think that the going beyond is really means going beyond our normal mundane states of consciousness, you know, everyday life and social media and gossip and and Facebook notifications and worries and that sort of thing. And the main way in which we go beyond is through um, what could generally be called mystical experiences, which are experiences of connection with consciousness or forms of being greater than ourselves. And um, I think that when people do that, sometimes it happens spontaneously without spiritual practices, for example, in near-death experiences. Um, No one actually tries to get involved in an accident or a heart attack so they can have a spiritual experience. But many people who do have the misfortune of being in an accident or a health challenge um, do have near-death experiences. And as I'm sure most listeners will know, this often involves feeling floating out of the body, going through a kind of tunnel, being then in a realm of great joy, bliss, light, uh, love. And then, of course, it's only a near-death experience, so they have to come back. But for some people, many people who've had these experiences, just two or three minutes of that experience changes their lives. They lose the fear of death. They feel a much stronger connection with other people and with a realm beyond the physical. Um, uh, uh, And many people have life-changing experiences through mystical experiences of a similar kind to that, but which can be encouraged through spiritual practices. And in my book, Ways to Go Beyond, I discuss seven different spiritual practices. Some of them um, people don't even think of as spiritual practices. For example, I have a chapter called Learning from Animals. And one of the points of spiritual practices is to come into the present. Um, You can't be in a spiritual state or a sense of connection if you're worrying about what's going to happen tomorrow or or you know worrying about what you should have said yesterday or something you have to be here now uh, as uh, Alan Watts put it um, so one of the things that really works for a lot of people is having animals in their lives because animals don't have all these worries that we have and ways of being distracted through internal dialogues and so on. If a cat's lying on your lap purring, uh, it's purring because it's totally present and enjoying being where it is and it's a sign of contentment in the present. And if one can get into that through the cat or, or if a dog's trying to get you to throw it a stick, it's so totally in the present, it brings you into the present too. And I think that's one reason that so many people keep animals Uh, about 50% of American households have animals. They don't have to have them for economic reasons, and in fact, they cost a lot, and there are big vet bills, and they're a nuisance having to pick up dog poo and stuff. Um, (laughs) There are many disadvantages, but the reason people have them is they make them feel more alive, and they give this sense of being in the present, a connection that comes through that being in the present. And so, uh, curiously, Um, animals can give people a kind of spiritual dimension to their lives without them even thinking that it might be spiritual. 
And as I show in my book, there are now many studies that have shown that people who keep animals uh, are generally speaking healthier, happier, and less prone to depression than those that don't. Um, and it's not just because dog owners get more exercise taking the dog for a walk. This happens with cats too, and practically no one takes a cat for a walk. Um, happens with horses, parrots, and, and, and other animals. Uh, I also have a chapter on sports as a spiritual practice because I think that's the way in the modern world in which most people get into altered states of consciousness. If you're skiing downhill at 60 miles an hour, for example, and there's a precipice on one side, unless you're totally present, totally concentrated, totally in the moment, you're going to go over the precipice and you'll be killed. And that's, I think, another reason why people like the thrill of speed or uh, almost any sport. You have to be completely present if you're going to be good at it. And it takes people away from the worries, what's the default mode network in the brain, which is about this internal dialogue and discursive worrying, anxiety, and so on. You have to become present. And I think, again, one of the many benefits of sports, apart from the physical benefits of the exercise, is that it brings people into the present. And that's why so many people enjoy sports and why it's so important in their lives. Even as a spectator, you get drawn into the present when a football match is a really exciting moment or in a cricket match someone you know, hits a ball in a particularly impressive way. So I hate I think, to cut you off, Professor, but we are running out of time. And I want everyone, before we get out of here, to know how to learn more about you, get your books, read your blog, uh, etc. Please take about 30 seconds to give us that info. Well, the simplest way is the website, sheldrake.org. Um, I also have a YouTube channel. You can get the link to that from my website. I have a series of podcasts and blogs. All of those are available completely free of charge on my website. It also lists my books, and they're all available as audio, most of them as audio books, as Kindle and e-books and as print books. And again, those can be found on Amazon.com. All right. I want to thank you, sir, for sharing your experiences, for your work and your contribution to mankind. All right. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show. And we'll join us again next week, same time, same place. And do tell your friends, let's have them join us as well. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at eldentaylor.com.